This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer. And I'm Stephen Ray Morris. Hosts of the Purrcast. That's Purr with three R's. It's a podcast all about cats. We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love them. Each episode, we invite a fellow feline lover, comedians, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends. Tune in to The Purrcast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to The Purrcast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Right meow. This is Exactly Right. This episode contains discussion of crime scene details and discussions of autopsy. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. What I'd like people to know is that these things are harder to solve than they seem to be on TV. Uh, if you watch a lot of TV, uh, the crime scene or crime programs, you, these things are uh, solvable. Yeah, they are on TV because they got ten people working on one case for you know for for an hour really, but a six month. We don't have that luxury. We have uh, one person working on it, and they're very busy, and so it's just they can't focus all their attention on this case. So I want the public. I'd like the public to know these things are. Not easy to solve. They're old. Uh, so we got to gather all the evidence. Back when they started, DNA didn't exist, and all this forensic stuff now, touch DNA or any of that stuff, didn't exist like it exists now. So we're trying to go back and piece together something that they didn't even know to collect back then. You know, now it's important to us, and so that it's harder than it looks. It's harder. It's harder than it seems to go back and piece this together. Plus, most of the people that you have to go back and talk to are either dead or they don't want to talk to you. And so you got to basically work magic. Here is what we read. It was Millen, Georgia, a little city in Jenkins County. The dumpster sat at the intersection of Kaiser and Old Perkins Road. The area was a little off the highway, somewhere you might pass if you were a local or a trucker who knew a cut through or two. Now the whole area has been reimagined. The trash is gone, and Kaiser Road is now called the Bypass. Local business owners still remember that dump site, though. Until February 14, 1988, there were two large dumpsters there. Afterward, there was only one. And then it was gone, too, to make way for the road. It's not completely clear who owned them. Maybe the city, but everyone used them. But they weren't right out on the highway. As the then-sheriff Bobby Womack pointed out, a passerby wouldn't know about the dumpsters. Someone would need to be from the area. Or maybe just a frequent traveler through it. Back to Valentine's Day, late afternoon. In 1988, it fell on a Sunday. A local man arrived at the dump site to sort through the refuse. He hoped to find aluminum cans, which went for roughly 22 cents a pound. He wasn't there long enough to collect what he needed, though. Almost as soon as he climbed into that first dumpster, he was hit by a sickening smell. There was a large duffel bag, really more of a suitcase, 
scattered in plastic bags of garbage. He slid forward. According to the Statesboro Herald, he was curious as to what it contained. Despite the smell and the stains, he pulled out a pocket knife and cut the bag open. Inside, there was swollen flesh, a tangle of black hair. He scrambled out of the dumpster and made a call to the sheriff just as soon as he could. The Jenkins County Sheriff's Department was soon on the scene, with arrangements to involve the local GBI office made just as quickly. The autopsy would be performed in Atlanta at the GBI facilities. The Millen News notes that the dumpsters had been emptied the Friday before and that law enforcement estimated the body had been there since. Progression of decomposition could only be guessed at on scene, but the level of trash in the dumpster strengthened their estimation. The body was transported with a duffel bag still surrounding it. Any attempt to separate the two might have affected evidence collection. The dumpster itself was towed to the department's parking lot so that it could be more thoroughly searched. At the scene, then-Sheriff Bobby Womack told the Millen News that the body was likely a woman, quote, maybe Hispanic or Caucasian. They'd know more when the Atlanta results came back. Over the next few weeks, a scattering of newspaper articles, now only available on microfiche, provided updates. The victim was identified as female. She may have died of asphyxiation, though the cause of death could not be determined. She had no obvious wounds. The GBI examiner noted that she was likely of East Asian descent, between 20 and 30, and of an average height and weight. Though missing persons reports were searched and compared, there were no possible matches. Marla Lawson, then GBI sketch artist, prepared a forensic representation of the victim. Both the Millen News and the Statesboro Herald note that it was an approximation. The state of the victim's remains made it difficult to present her as accurately as the GBI would have liked. In the picture, the woman's lips are parted, showing slightly crooked teeth. Her long hair hangs over her shoulder as if she's just taken it down. She's smiling just a little. It's a striking drawing but no suspects or persons of interest were identified in the media. And then the story faded. Outside of an AJC article listing her as one of 51 unidentified person cases maintained by the GBI, we found no publicly accessible news articles available on her case. We did eventually track down one transcript of a News Channel 6 broadcast that aired some years back after she was found. Our subscription services, academic databases, and library-only resources turned up nothing. Her only web presence was on message boards and websites devoted to the missing and unidentified. There, her case and its spare details were discussed a few times. She is sometimes listed as a possible victim of serial killers Larry Dwayne Hall or Keith Jesperson. There's nothing else. To read about her at all, you'll need to order microfiche within a university system. This story is different, for us anyway. Our path to knowledge, or at least attempted knowledge, showed us everything we didn't know. It showed us both the value of and the limitations of web sleuthing. It raised social issues that aren't often covered in the media, or ones that have been but that the Southeast hasn't looked for in its own borders. 
A year after we began, we do not know the identity of the Jenkins County Jane Doe. But we have a better idea of who she could have been. And we have a good answer as to who might have killed her. To start at our beginning, in June of 2018, we saw her mentioned on an old Crime Watchers message board thread. And then we began to dig. We started with the NamUs database, the Jenkins County Jane Doe or unidentified person number 4697, female, 16 to 27 years old, 5'5 and 140 pounds estimated, race, Asian, hair, brown, eyes, unknown. One exclusion, Yvonne Mestez. That's all. Nickmec includes the same details, but also adds the following. Her teeth were in fairly good condition, and a lower molar had been extracted not too long before death. The forensic sketch and a photo of the duffel bag she was found in are included in that listing. The GBI's website also adds the following details. She had brown eyes, may have been Asian-Caucasian, crooked upper teeth. Bedding items were found with her body. And that's all that can be gleaned from the databases. Based on that one forensic sketch, the Crime Watchers message board guesses at the Jinkindos' race and ethnicity. There's a post noting that she may have actually been Hispanic. This is attributed there to gossip from around Millen. When we tracked down a local business owner who remembered the crime, she actually verified that rumor. She said she'd heard the woman might have been Puerto Rican and from out of town. A few posts mention the bedding she was found with, but there are no details. The best description we came across was in the News Channel 6 transcription, which includes quotes from locals and a GBI agent. In the transcript, the victim is described as, quote, Hispanic or Asian, not, quote, Asian or Asian Caucasian. In the report, the GBI agent specifically discusses the duffel bag and the bedding, quote, the nylon suitcase has a very distinct zipper pattern, steel wheels on the bottom, and no other markings. The woman was wrapped in blankets with an ornate pillow and embroidered flowers. We saw the bedding called ornate and embroidered in at least one other place. But what did that mean? Probably not from a hotel or motel, maybe from the killer's home, more likely from the victim's, or maybe from her place of employment. Victimology is not guesswork, but anyone who has ever dug deep into a case knows that it's those little details that create obsession. A hope that a case can be closed if you can just see something that everyone else has missed. So, we started with what we knew. The only problem? We were wrong. Millen, Georgia, lies roughly three hours south of Atlanta and an hour and a half west of the coastal city of Savannah. It's in Jenkins County, where poverty rates stay high, sometimes topping 30%. In 1990, Millen had a population around 3,300, with the Census Bureau reporting majority populations as black and white. There were eight Asian people in Millen at the time of the census, accounting for roughly 0.4% of the total population. The Jenkins County Jane Doe was not one of these eight citizens. The rural South and Millen is rural, commonly has a low Asian population. There were similar census counts in the surrounding towns and cities, 
she wasn't missing from the immediate area. Even nationwide, there weren't many missing women to compare her to. Per the 2010 census, Asian women made up approximately 2.7% of the total American population. Currently, NamUs lists 168 missing and 51 unidentified Asian females in the United States. In the case of an unidentified woman of Asian descent, the pool of missing persons to sort through is small. For comparison, black women make up roughly 7% of the U.S. population. At the time of this recording, there were 1,056 missing and 571 unidentified black females listed in the NamUs database. There's a caveat here. In some cases, race is undetermined, so numbers in any population are not exact. In others, a decedent may be listed as both Hispanic and Asian because investigators aren't sure and don't want to narrow the field. That can lead to missed identifications. The takeaway is this. Of the known Asian population in the United States, there are comparatively few cases of missing and unidentified women. And within those cases, there are also few, if any, with media presence. Consider Hiromi Kazuni, who went missing in July of 1986. She was a member of the Unification Church. They're better known in mainstream coverage as Moonies, or followers of the Reverend Sung Myung Moon. She was last seen selling puppets at a busy intersection in Fort Myers, Florida. Though she was a member of a well-known organization, one many have called a cult, there's almost no coverage of her disappearance. Based on our research, it seems her family may have been either overseas or not in the continental U.S., but still, her disappearance couldn't even be called a blip on the radar. Without NamUs, we wouldn't even have these details. The cases with the most coverage are also the most recent, missing teenagers and young adults who've disappeared in the past five years. For some older listings, we couldn't find any coverage at all. Of the women who went missing before February 14, 1988, there are fewer than 10 who, based on age, might be considered against the Jenkins County Jane Doe. One is Hiromi Kazuni. And there's also Catherine Clampett, a Korean-American woman who disappeared in 1987. Her employer is suspected of her murder. Yun Cha Dianek was last seen in Texas in 1987, where two unknown white men forced her into a car. Stacy Kalakoma was 14 when she disappeared. She was last seen at her boyfriend's house. NamUs lists her as Asian. Hawaiian governmental databases note that Stacy is Pacific Islander. As with all the other women, she exists mostly in databases and missing persons discussion threads. Of the 51 unidentified Asian females listed in NamUs, a startling number are recorded via a single partial remain. There's a woman's skull, uncovered in the evidence vault of a New Jersey prosecutor's office. Another woman's skull was found in the attic of a house in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then reported to the police. Other skulls were found by work crews in forests and a disintegrating burlap sack tangled in tree roots. One skull was found marked with a drawing of a cat in the number 13. Two sets of partial bone remains were discovered a year apart in Pierce County, Washington State. The women, both listed as Asian, are estimated to be in the same age range. In another instance, a femur was found along a Santa Cruz hiking trail. 
The victim is listed as Asian or possibly, quote, American Indian or Alaskan Native. That is not uncommon. In fact, one of the many reasons we do not have a full scope of the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women is that some of the victims may not have been recognized or classified as such. Especially in the South, understanding of who is indigenous and what that means is not nuanced. In NamUs, a few listings note clothing brands that originate outside of the United States. We found a description of one woman who was wearing Ming Shijia Ren jeans, a brand that would have been bought in China at the time that she died, somewhere between 2000 and 2003. It's possible she didn't have family in the country to report her missing. Perhaps the elderly women who were listed in NamUs, especially prevalent in Los Angeles and New York, were also alone. They mostly died of natural causes or accidents or by apparent suicide. But the majority of the unidentified cases are women who were murdered, who should have been reported missing. So why weren't they? There are a number of scenarios. As with Christmas and Dennis Doe, these could have been familial homicides. Perhaps, as in the case of Myung Hua and her son, relatives or friends were told they'd moved away. Perhaps these women were estranged from their families or separated by continents. Or, if the missing woman and her family were undocumented immigrants to the United States, there could have been a reluctance to report a crime. In our first episode of this series, we discussed how seeking help from law enforcement can be difficult for a person whose immigration status is uncertain. This can extend to reporting a missing person or even identifying or claiming a body. There's been more discussion of this issue since the 2016 elections, and the ACLU released an extensive report in 2018. In it, they cite fear of deportation as a major deterrent and lack of reporting. In these situations, missing persons from families without legal status can become members of the, quote, missing-missing, also called the, quote, unreported missing. Groups like Outpost for Hope describe such missing persons as, quote, off the grid of social services and other agencies who might otherwise note and flag an absence. One of the most famous unreported or missing-missing cases is that of Angelica Castillo, better known as Baby Hope. She remained unidentified from 1991 until 2013. The New York Daily News reports that after her body was discovered inside a cooler, a Bronx police squad paid to have her laid to rest. A tip line number was engraved on her tombstone, along with the words, because we care. Authorities eventually discovered she'd been abused and smothered by a cousin who, with the help of his sister, hid the girl's body and all the evidence of the crime. At the time, Angelica had been living with her father and another sister, though her mother was also in New York. Neither parent reported the child missing. A tip line call had led police to Angelica's mother, whose DNA they collected after they retrieved the letter that she'd mailed. According to ABC News, Angelica's mother said that she didn't know the girl was missing. They reported in 2013 that she told an interpreter, quote, her father took them away and maybe that was my mistake to let him take them away. I did not go to the police because I was afraid of not being heard. I was afraid, not knowing the language. 
Some of the unreported missing are homeless or home insecure. The Jenkins County Jane Doe could have been without housing, but it wouldn't have been for long. She'd been in good health and had recent dental work, a tooth pulled. The fact that it was pulled, though, versus treated with more expensive surgery may hint at limited income. The highway-adjacent dump site, combined with the FBI's report on highway serial killings, suggests that she could have been a sex worker, perhaps transient, perhaps not. But it's just a guess. Sheriff Bobby Womack thought that her killer would have known the area well. And if he was from town, where did he meet her? Why wasn't she recognized? There are many scenarios, both if she was born in America or if she was born elsewhere. And there are many dangers faced by foreign nationals who do not have access to the legal system and its protections. When we searched through the NamUs listing of unidentified women of Asian descent, we encountered another such danger. There's another group of missing-missing, people who die while attempting to enter the United States. The media has paid some attention to immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers from Mexico and Central and South America who've been killed during border crossings. But there are fewer stories about the Asian immigrants who figure among the dead. For instance, in 2001, November, two women and one man were found in the All-American Canal and identified by authorities as, quote, likely members of a group crossing over the border. They were all of Asian descent. The women each carried $300, and all three were somewhere between 17 and 30 years old. The All-American Canal's Calexico, California region has been the site of hundreds of drownings, and most of the dead are immigrants. Bodies are often recovered in groups. The canal's danger lies in what the Associated Press described in 2011 as strong undercurrents below a, quote, apparently calm surface. At the All-American Canal, there are now signs in English and Spanish that mark caution, dangerous water. But those signs are not in the indigenous languages of Central and South America, and they're not in Chinese. And people keep drowning, or dying in the desert, or falling prey to predatory smugglers who operate on a much larger scale than the classic coyotes. NPR reports that human smuggling from China and into the United States has been on the rise since the 1980s. People are brought in through Belize, where there's a substantial ethnic Chinese population, and up through Mexico. Others arrive by sea, coming into port cities like New York, and under harsh conditions. And according to NPR, in 1993, 300 people were sunk into the water when a smuggler's derelict freighter crashed. At least 10 people died there. Before that crash, there was virtually no coverage of snakeheads or smugglers, or the people who largely came to the U.S. from the Fujian province and paid thousands of dollars to make that journey. The precise number of Chinese immigrants who have died at port or the southern border are unknown. But if they make the journey successfully, they will have to live off the grid, unreported if missing sometimes unclaimed and thus unidentified, if dead. Jenkins County, Georgia, isn't anywhere near California or New York. But Savannah is a port city, too, and humans make up some of the cargo that passes through it. Americans are aware of human trafficking, mostly domestic sex trafficking. 
But as reported by Vice, Tom Perez, former U.S. Secretary of Labor, remarked, quote, Wherever you have immigrants, you have the potential for human trafficking. This trafficking takes the form of forced visible labor, domestic, restaurant, retail, nail salon, and more, and the invisible labor of forced sex work. It all falls under the definition of modern slavery. Polaris, an organization that fights trafficking, points out that the cycle of debt to get into the country and then the debt to stay creates situations of forced servitude. Their human trafficking hotline statistics reported that of all of 2013 calls, 32% quote, reference foreign nationals. And the trafficking isn't only happening in big cities, though Atlanta is a hub, but spreading out along the highways into businesses that operate below and above the radar. Article is an online-only furniture company that offers beautiful, modern, well-made furniture designed with Scandinavian simplicity in mind. Online-only means that Article is able to eliminate the layers of traditional retail so they can keep prices low and quality high. No showrooms, no salespeople, just savings. An Article is serious about shipping. No matter how many items you pick, every order is shipped at a flat rate of $49. In-stock items can be expected in two weeks or less, and Article even offers in-room delivery and assembly assistance. They have the best customer service in the biz and a 30-day, no-questions-asked return policy. Now that we've been enjoying our Article sofa for a few months, I'm ready to make our living room complete with a coffee table and a chair, and I'll definitely be getting both from Article.com. Their customer service is the best, so attentive and so prompt. When I had questions about the size of the Zven Aqua Tweed chair from the same collection as our sofa, I was able to chat with a customer service representative right on Article's website. And with their design blog, I got some great ideas for reimagining the whole living space. You can check that out on Article's website, too. Article is offering today's listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this offer, visit article.com slash fallline, F-A-L-L-L-I-N-E. That's all it takes. Go to article.com slash fallline, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash fallline to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You deserve gorgeous, professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon. Many Madison Reed clients comment how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. I've always loved the quality, convenience, and affordability of Madison Reed, but lately I'm especially impressed with their commitment to quality ingredients. With ingredients like argan oil, keratin, and honey, I can feel good about everything Madison Reed has created for my hair care routine.
And of course, Madison Reed is free of ammonia, parabens, and phthalates. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. The Fall Line listeners get 10% off, plus free shipping on their first color kit with code FALL, F-A-L-L. That's code FALL at madison-reed.com. You have the suspect's fingerprints at the crime scene. You have witnesses testifying that they saw the suspect commit the crime. The suspect has a motive. It's an open and shut case. Or is it? Each week, the ParCast original Not Guilty examines controversial criminal cases to determine why solid evidence doesn't always lead to a conviction. What police considered compelling evidence against Casey Anthony and the disappearance of her daughter, Kaylee, defense attorneys classified as fantasy forensics, and she was ultimately acquitted of Kaylee's murder. Amanda Knox served four years in an Italian prison for murder before later being acquitted. Was the media portrayal of Knox the profile of a killer or a televised character assassination? Sometimes, even jurors are responsible for wrongful convictions, as was the case when the Central Park Five were convicted despite DNA evidence showing none of the suspects were involved. Subscribe to Not Guilty wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search Not Guilty or visit parcast.com slash not guilty to listen now. A major hotspot of sex trafficking is the massage parlor industry. This is not a new problem, though Patriots team owner Robert Kraft's 2019 arrest has brought more media attention. In 1990, two years after the Jenkins County Jane Doe was found, the Toronto Star reported dozens of massage parlors opening each month all over the U.S., with regular stings happening in metropolitan areas. Many workers have forged passports or enter the country on tourist visas. In Georgia, we've never had a precise massage parlor count. Business owners try to circumvent licensing as therapeutic massage and thus avoid close oversight. Many of the trafficking victims in Georgia are Chinese, though women from a number of nations are victimized. Any major events, like the Masters in Augusta or Savannah St. Patrick's Day Parade, which is the third largest in the world, can increase sex trafficking. This includes trafficking in massage parlors, where women often live, eat, and work in extremely poor conditions, their visas held hostage, if they have visas at all. When Robert Kraft was arrested in a Florida sting, Tim Darnell of The Patch noted that all but one of the trafficked women declined to testify. As an ACLU lawyer told USA Today, quote, undocumented immigrants may fear deportation if they come forward to report abuse. And language barriers and lack of interpreters are another issue. Though most of the prosecution has been focused on the customers, women face as much or more danger from the traffickers themselves who are more difficult to prosecute. It is difficult to find information on massage parlors of the 1980s and 1990s. We know they existed, though, in cities and along the highways. Those highway spots catered to long-haul truckers. They still do. And many have been in business for decades, though often under different names and in slightly shifting locations. As the Macon Telegraph reported in 2011... Name changes in recent years have been focused on removing the word massage and replacing it with spa or salon or relaxation or even tanning. 
all to avoid newer legislation aimed at the massage therapy claims. There are still plenty of billboards, though, and they announce truckers welcome. Message boards rank and describe the women at various establishments. If these businesses have websites, they often show dimly lit rooms with the massage table or bed front and center. And the bedding is often embroidered. We haven't found many pictures of 1980s and 1990s massage parlors. There have been a few, mostly in relation to big busts and exposés, with a very different tone. There's very little awareness of sex trafficking in 1980s reporting, and no discussion of the vulnerability of the women who've been charged. In the few photos we have seen, the most common images are mugshots. Sometimes the women are shown being let out in handcuffs. The interior rooms are not usually photographed, so the best comparison we have are contemporary websites, and we dug through them. It's a weak connection 30 years on, but we kept thinking about that bedding found with the Jenkins County Jane Doe and how it was described. Embroidered, floral, ornate. Those were the words. Many of the easily accessible pay-for-sex establishments in Georgia are massage parlors. Not all, but many. Perhaps the Jenkins County Jane Doe could have been a worker, especially an unwilling worker, not listed as missing, at one of them. Tracing the shifting business trails of dozens of parlors proved impossible, but it still felt like something worth digging into. And that's the problem with publicly available information. There's a strong chance that at least some of the details are wrong. Or maybe not even wrong, maybe simply up for debate based on phrasing or conflicting news reports. And then you go down a rabbit hole, and maybe a hundred Reddit posts erupt and different factions form. Maybe over what brand of jacket was worn, or whether the person was in the surveillance photo, and if they were male or female. Maybe over Mara Murray and police SUVs. And you can get so caught up on those details, you forget they're compiled with phrasing changes that may seem slight, but mean different things. Who was driving the Chevy Tahoe? When was a victim last seen? Sometimes, there's nothing but your best guesses. And we're lucky we went down some of those roads because we found out about more people whose cases don't make the news. But if we'd stopped the episode there, then we wouldn't have told you nearly enough. Law enforcement regularly holds facts of cases back. They need to often, so there's information that can lead to arrest. And in Georgia, there's no sunshine law. An open case is not subject to a FOIA request. But this time, the GBI invited us to Millen, Georgia, and let us review the Jenkins County Jane Doe's file. We were given the opportunity to go through it all. We met with special agent in charge John Durden and Agent Dustin Peake, who was recently assigned to the case. They gave us several hours to review all of the material and also agreed to participate in an interview. You heard one of those clips at the top of the episode. That's why we're able to tell you what we now know, an actual account of the crime scene and of the victim. The woman's body was discovered between 2 and 3 p.m., not the 4 and 5 p.m. that has been reported in some places. It was law enforcement who arrived at 4.45. 
the Jenkins County Jane Doe was found by a man who was collecting cans. But he wasn't alone. His girlfriend sat in the car while he boosted up and into the dumpster. He did cut open the duffel-style suitcase, despite the odor. And when he saw what looked like flesh, he quickly exited and returned to his vehicle. But the couple didn't call police straight away. Instead, they went to a friend's house, and the friend returned with them to the dumpster. After he'd seen the body, too, they then alerted Jenkins County. There had been a small brown car at the dump site when the man and his girlfriend arrived, but it had pulled out and headed back toward Millen before he was inside the dumpster. And the smell had been noticed by at least one other person who'd left trash at the dumpster before the 14th, though they didn't investigate. Although the notes are not specific on this point, it's likely that this was reported after the discovery became known in town. The victim was described as in a, quote, tucked position within the bag, which had been wrapped in plastic and duct tape. After her body was transported to Crow Hill Funeral Home, law enforcement searched the dumpster. They found a gas can still partially full. Whether it was related to the crime scene is not noted, but the body was not burned. Maybe the gasoline had no relation, but maybe someone had planned on using it. The following year, in Jasper County, South Carolina, another woman was found in a suitcase. This time, she was set on fire. Perhaps the Jenkins County suspect had just run out of time. Everything was taken into evidence. The dumpster in question was marked in paint and towed to the sheriff's office, where it could be more thoroughly examined. When officers and agents canvassed the neighborhood, they heard at least one mention of a brownish car. Two children reported that they'd been playing in their yard on February 12th. It was about 3.30 p.m. when they heard a scream. It sounded like someone crying out, my baby, my baby. They saw a vehicle pull off by the dumpster and a white man and woman, both older, maybe in their 50s, get out and throw something away. Within the week, the victim was transported to GBI Atlanta for examination. There's no way to make an autopsy report sound like anything but what it is, an inventory. But there are a few important details that might hint at who she was in life, so we feel they're important to include. The autopsy notes that she was likely Asian or Hispanic, like that early news report said. There's no mention of Asian Caucasian, though that idea may have developed later. No DNA tests were performed at the time. It was 1988. To our knowledge, she was not examined by a forensic anthropologist at the time, as she was not skeletonized. Her state made race difficult to determine, though her hair was, and we saw a picture and agree, thick, coarse, and straight, and dark brown or black. Her build was slim, and she had slightly crooked top teeth. A bottom molar had been removed at some point, but it was healed. She was not found with any clothing or jewelry. She had freshly shaven legs. Her feet had been bound, but aside from that, there were no obvious signs of injury. Smothering is a possibility, particularly with the pillow, which was included, though it was not marked with blood. She didn't test positive for any drugs, and the rape kit came back negative for seminal fluid. After samples were taken and stored, the body was cremated. It's one of the many challenges that the modern investigators face.
As we said, the autopsy notes that she was maybe Hispanic, maybe Asian. And we've added maybe indigenous to that list too. There are no statistics available on how the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women has affected the Southeast. We spent several months attempting to find out why, and our best information came from a series of indigenous scholars who were kind enough to speak with us. Dr. Melinda Maynard-Lowry, a Lumbee professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill, focuses particularly on the Southeast, and she suggested that we contact a few tribal offices. We were able to speak to a few representatives who had the same federal data we had to go on. Missing and murdered indigenous women are already underrepresented in national databases. An Urban Indian Health Institute study by Anita Lucchese and Abigail Echohawk analyzed data from 71 U.S. cities. They discovered that though 5,712 cases of missing or murdered indigenous women were reported in 2016, only 116 cases were logged into the Department of Justice database. Though murder is, quote, the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaskan Native women, and, quote, 71% of indigenous people live in urban areas, there is not consistent, quote, racial classification. Indigenous victims and unidentified persons may not be recognized as such. This is only one roadblock in the path to developing data in the Southeast. Because there are few federally recognized tribes in our region, there's a lack of data usually based on federal numbers. Federal status entails a government-to-government relationship structure between tribes who hold it and the official branches of the United States. In Georgia, there are no federally recognized tribes, and only three recognized by the state. Forced removal, a displacement, land occupation, and mass murder have starkly changed the Southeast. Though the land in Georgia is Cherokee, Chickasaw, Creek, Shawnee, and that's only to name a very few, public recognition of this fact is scant. When we had the honor of emailing with Anita Lucchese, who co-wrote this report, she had some thoughts as to why there is little data in the South. Anita describes herself as a Cheyenne doctoral student and executive director of the Sovereign Bodies Institute. Their website offers this description, quote, Sovereign Bodies Institute builds on indigenous traditions of data gathering and knowledge transfer to create, disseminate, and put into action research on gender and sexual violence against indigenous people. Much of her work has been to create the very first database of missing and murdered indigenous women. When I asked Anita about her experience with cases of missing and murdered indigenous women in the Southeast, she said, quote, As someone involved in the movement across the country, I can tell you there are folks in the South who are doing work on this issue, but it's very small things that fly under the radar. The data SBI has in our database extends throughout the South, but is limited. I would guess that's because, one, law enforcement there are unfamiliar with how to document Native identity. Two, many Native people in the South are multiracial and frequently get miscategorized. Three, Native communities in the South are less visible than in other areas. And four, Lumbees are not federally recognized, so they may not be in the system as Native. 
Our biggest portion of data in the South is concentrated in Lumbee communities. The Lumbee tribe is based in Robeson County, North Carolina, and has long worked to gain federally recognized status. Outside of Robeson, law enforcement's realization that a decedent might be Lumbee is not a given. This doesn't even scratch the surface on the Lumbee tribe and their experience in the Southeast. But if you'd like to learn more, we suggest Dr. Melinda Maynard Lowry's books, The Lumbee Indians, An American Struggle, and Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South. If you want to support the work that Sovereign Bodies Institute is doing, please share their organization and donate. You can find the link in our show notes. Maybe the Jenkins County Jane Doe isn't Lumbee or Catawba or Seminole or Eastern Band Cherokee. But if she is, our current system will make it even more difficult to identify her. We've learned that the breadth of racial possibilities is much larger than most database listings can describe. That's one thing the GBI wants you to know. But it's only the first in a long line of items. We've seen the crime scene photos. A few details will be omitted here to preserve information that could be used in prosecution. What we can talk about is the bedding. A pillow, a coverlet, and sheets. The sheets were unembroidered. There was also a light blue towel with a butterfly design. That hadn't been mentioned elsewhere. The pillow itself was more like a decorative pillow from a bedding set, the kind you'd set up on the bed. It was pale green with a floral design, and it matched the pattern on the maroon bedspread. Neither are what we call embroidered, or even ornate, but those are subjective words. Rather, they were covered in a large, swirling satin rosette of fabric, the kind that stands up enough to look almost like a floral wave. It is very much a young woman or a teenager's bedspread. It hadn't come from any business, massage parlor, or otherwise. That set would be difficult to quickly change. It looked like something that would have belonged to the victim. Hard to imagine the killer having it in his home. And even then, whose would it be? Would they wonder when it was gone? When we spoke to special agent in charge John Durden, we sat across a conference table with the work the GBI agents had done spread between us. The agent currently assigned to the case, Dustin Peake, joined us, and they agreed to be recorded. We've had law enforcement invite us to view files before, but this experience was singular. So we asked him why, why he decided to speak with us at such length, and why share so many files. The reason I'm talking to you all is I want to develop further leads on this. Uh, I want, if somebody's listening to us and they know about this case, call us with good information. I need somebody that says, hey, I lived in that area. I saw this. I know that. I, I, I want to talk to you about this. That's the kind of leads that we can go follow. And that's the kind, that's a showstopper, I'll call it. If we get calls like that, I said, we're all going. I'm going. We're going to go figure out because that's a hot lead. And we're going to explore that. Hot leads, I guess, is what, what I'm looking for. Or any kind of idea, most of your listeners are going to come up there, crime stoppers or crime investigators, they're going to give us an idea. Call us, give an idea. They say, hey, have you checked this? Have you checked that? Nope, we'll do it. We'll try to find out if we've done it or not. But any, anything will help. We're not going to not answer the phone. After our first phone call, 
Durden knew we'd been particularly interested in that bedding. Sitting in his office, holding the pictures, it was strange to see it. There'd been such a strong mental picture forming, formed, that losing it was a bit of a shock. But the truth, what we saw, felt equally important. This set was unusual enough that someone might remember it. We asked Special Agent in Charge Durden what he thought about that. Part of the bedding is probably to wrap her up. It's easy to transport somebody that's wrapped. And some of that's wrapped, it tightens her up. Maybe you know the bedding could be used to tighten her up to get her in that suitcase, because the suitcase was small. And so that could have been use of that. You know, the bedding, it could have come from wherever she came from. That could have been her favorite bedding and travel. She could have come from a motel room. She could have come from her own house. Uh, she could have come into another house, and that's another person's bedding. There's several, many options. Uh, it is, I agree, it is special bedding. Uh, it, it, we talked before this, and it, this is not something that the, the suspect was probably going to carry around with him, and I think it belonged to her. And probably once we get it out, we'll end up finding more hair of her within this bedding or more DNA samples in this bedding. But it is a significant thing, and it was a significant thing there. If you read the case file, the agent that was that he was concerned about this bedding, and uh, he, he actually tried to track it back to the manufacturers. Korea, maybe? Mm -hmm. I think yeah, some of them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was important to know where that came from, to know where she came from. And there was a, there. it looked like there was a pillow in there that didn't have any blood on it. Yep. Which is like, why would you include the pillow? I yep. just, I just find it I don't, I don't know, and, and hopefully we'll figure that out one day, but probably not. But it's, it's uh, that's all part of, part of, uh, Thinking it through, and intuition, and, and like you, you said it before we turned the courtroom, that, that that's odd that this, this bedding is there. That, that means that she was attached to some kind of. And it's kind of like the I call it the dead man's clue. Uh, it's something she left for us, and it's our job to figure out why that's important. As we said, no missing woman from the area matched the Jenkins County Jane Doe's description. So if the bedding was hers, it's likely she wasn't from the immediate area. That is, assuming she was not one of the missing missing. They were able to get a good fingerprint from her, and based on that, she was excluded from being two missing women from the area fairly quickly. But neither was from Millen. In Doe case coverage, you expect a few excluded missing persons and maybe even a suspect or two. Some of them infamous. The Jenkins County Jane Doe has incited a few conversations like that, mostly on the topics of alleged serial killer Larry Dwayne Hall. He was a Civil War reenactor who traveled the country with his twin brother, a brother who says he knew nothing of the crimes. Right now, he's in prison for kidnapping, but he's also widely suspected of a number of murders, most of which took place while he traveled for his Civil War events. In the Jenkins case, he's come up a few times, even in a criminology graduate study. We considered it, but then we spoke to Christopher Holly Martin. He wrote the most comprehensive text on the murders, Urges. He said he found the connection unlikely, though he suspects Hall of a variety of crimes, including perhaps even the Springfield Three. The crime scene and the way the victim was dumped did not meet Hall's patterns. He suspects rough geography is the only similarity. While Keith Jesperson, the happy face killer, can't be excluded simply on this fact, his first known killing didn't occur until 1990. Of his eight confirmed victims, only one was from the South, Florida, 
not so far from Jenkins County. But that murder occurred in 1994. And then there's Samuel Little. He hit the news in late 2018, though law enforcement had been aware of him for much longer. The New York Times reported that after he was convicted of four murders in 2014, Little began confessing. And he kept confessing. By the time his story hit, he confessed to 90 murders. Now the total is 93. Law enforcement has so far confirmed 34. He spent the last few months drawing portraits of his victims. He doesn't know many of their names, and giving authorities dates and locations or maybe a few possibilities for each. If you've seen these drawings, you'll know. They're garish pastels of dozens of women of all ages and races, though the majority are black. We first saw them in the AJC, a slideshow of women in lipstick, heavy makeup, some crying, some smiling. He's suspected of seven Georgia murders. He was a former boxer who could disable a victim with a single punch. And, as the AGC reported, he strangled or smothered most of the women he killed. Samuel Little has not been excluded as a possible suspect in the Jenkins County Jane Doe case. It's easier to say the cases he has been excluded in and those that he hasn't. We have so many cold cases in Georgia, and he spent plenty of time here. He was born in our state. But he also spent almost all of the late 1980s in California. Once, he went as far south as Arkansas, but didn't travel back to his home state, as far as we know. He was born in Reynolds, a town about 2.5 hours from Millen. Reynolds is much closer to Atlanta, where he has a suspected victim, and to Macon, where there's another. But special agent in charge, John Durden, doesn't have to look so far afield in the Jenkins County Jane Doe case. In fact, the files he spread on that conference table hold a confession. Problem is, the man who gave it is dead. Next time on The Fall Line, part two of the story of the Jenkins County Jane Doe, the suspect who confessed, and many other details on the case. Plus, more interviews with the agents who are trying to identify her and close it. We hope you'll join us then. The Fall Line, an investigative podcast focusing on unsolved cases in the Southeast, is back this August with Season 5. This series covers the 1998 disappearance of Shaikimia Pate, an 8-year-old from Unadilla, Georgia. As a little girl, I can remember that uh, Shai Shai was very energetic and bubbly. Seldom did you see her without a smile. She had a beautiful smile. She, she was just a real bubbly, smart, smart little girl. Shaikimia was excited to spend that Labor Day weekend with her family, starting with attendance of the first high school football game of the season. In their tiny town of Unadilla, Georgia, that was a big event. That Friday afternoon, Shaikimia stepped off her front porch and onto the sidewalks of the street she'd lived on her whole life. She planned to wait outside for a ride from her older sister. 
she was seen by neighbors, friends, family. Everyone thought she'd made it to see the Dooley County Bobcats play. But she never made it there. And so I thought Swan had took her to the game until 1230 that night when Veronica called me and told me, she called me, she asked me what shot with me. And I said, no, nah. I said, you mean you don't know what shot at? I called the police, but nobody, he didn't come. And then when he did come, he said she had to be missing 24 hours before they'll go looking for her. Shaikimia Pate vanished right off her own street. Though her disappearance is as mysterious and as arresting as that of Madeline McCann, she has received very little attention. Despite a $20,000 reward and exhaustive work by Shaikimia's family, Veronica Pate, her mother, has been left waiting for 21 years. She made an effort to be optimistic that that child would be back. She kept trying to prove that it's gonna be all right, leaving the door unlocked, leaving a light on, cause Shasha coming home. Each hour in the missing persons case matters. So what about a cold case unsolved for decades? Some of the things that we run into working cold cases is that these cases, I mean, they're old and um, people's memory is not what they used to be. Memories fade, people die. Few outside of rural middle Georgia have ever heard of Shaikimia Pate. But maybe, with your help, that can change. This season on the fall line from Exactly Right, we work with Shaikimia's family, the local sheriff, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to produce detailed coverage of her case and generate new leads. 2019 has seen decades-old cold cases come to a close. And so it's time to give Shaikimia's open case and her mother's open door the attention they needed, deserved, years ago. This is The Fall Line. We hope you'll join us on August 7th for Episode 1, September 4th, 1998.